morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Uh, my name is Joe Franzone. I'm seeing some faces that I'm not familiar with. After our time this evening is done, if it, I think it would be fantastic if we met each other. So just keep that in mind as, as the things unfold. You're probably seeing a whole lot of these cards around. Well, let me just talk to you just for a brief moment about these cards. This is um, some kind of follow-up that we're trying to do after Easter that is on April 12th, which is Thursday of next week. So through the weekend, if you're here and you're new to Christ or you have some questions about what you're going to hear about Christ this weekend, we want to invite you to two different places, one in Grand Rapids, one in Deer River. You can read all the details on the card. But also, if you have friends or neighbors, and pay attention because we've been praying all week And last week for this, if you meet people, just happen to meet people in the course of today, between today and Thursday, um, then think about these things as you consider to do God's revealed will and introduce people to Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, believe it or not, is where we're going to be. We're going to begin reading in verse 39, page 747 in the seat Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or you're unfamiliar with with your Bible, page 747. We're going to begin reading in verse 39 to verse 46. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep Exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word tonight. Let's bow together just for a brief prayer. Our God and Father, on this Good Friday evening, will you please, will you please, God, pour out your mercy and your grace and your peace over us? Help us to think. Help me to speak. Help us to listen. And in all this, may you exalt yourself and your Son as your word is preached through the power of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen. I went to the place where I was asked to go, and the place where I was asked to go, human suffering was everywhere. I was told to speak to a specific lady, a lady whose husband was dying, and although he was not her first, he was a good man, the lady said. He took good care of her. However, it was easy to see that she was full of anger. I asked her for a moment of time. She consented. I said to her, I don't know you, and you don't know me. However, I was asked to come here to try and comfort you and see where you and your dying husband stand with Jesus Christ. We talked. She listened. I told her the gospel. But in the midst 
of our conversation came the question. And this is what she said. You tell me. You tell me how it could possibly be that a loving God would allow my children and allow myself to suffer as we have and still are from the drinking, alcoholic rage of my first husband. We were beaten, starved, abused in all the worst of ways. Tell me, preacher, she said, tell me how a loving God could allow my children and allow myself to suffer like this. And when she said that, right away, I knew that we were at it. She didn't have any of the evangelical cliches. She didn't know how to speak Christianese. There was no superficial, I'll pray for, pray for you, that could bail me out of the situation. We were at business. She had a question. She wanted an answer. And this was, for me, a very difficult moment. I was helped before I left She was smiling. She said that there was no possible good that could ever come out of her sufferings. I told her that I could think of one. She said, what? I said, I got to meet you and I got to share the gospel with you. That disarmed her a bit, but just a bit. But what I said to her on her question with this, I can't tell you exactly why these things have happened. But if you really want to think this out and consider what the Bible says about God, Not what you say, not what others say, not even what other books say. But if you really want to think this out and consider what the Bible says about God, then you will be introduced to a God that is not sitting on a lawn chair, but one who is hanging on a cross. You will be introduced to a God who did not remove himself from any of the pain and suffering that you and your dear children endured. So, dear lady, if you actually read the Bible, you'll be introduced to a God that understands your suffering. In fact, one who endured sufferings at levels that you or I could never, ever fully comprehend. This is a God who plunged himself into my sin and to your sin and to your pain and to your children's pain and all your suffering and all their suffering and all the sin and pain and suffering of this world. He plunged himself, the innocent one, the pure one, plunged himself into these things to the point the mental, physical, and spiritual agony that are all the byproducts of such evils were accepted on his precious body to his death on a tree so we had a few more words I gave her my card I asked if she could call then our time together ended so as we consider the verses here that we've read this morning we're just going to consider a few we are left with a scene a sober scene a scene not of triumphalism not a scene of confidence or arrogance this is a scene that begins the process that is to unfold in the dear life of our precious Savior as the weight and the penalty of sin is beginning to be laid down on Him. So what we have here in this is a thinking Savior. He's thinking things through. He's thinking the cross through. Thinking what it will actually mean to have sin. All sin for a time. All laid on Him as he is horrified as this process begins to crush him. So Jesus in this doesn't show confidence. He shows anguish. 
He's not puffing out his chest as real men supposedly do. Point of fact, he's actually in need of the given help he receives. Now, I want you to understand what is happening here. And I don't want you to be in any doubt what is happening here. Because this, as we sang it true, this is a great mystery. God is about to die. God is about to die. Now, up to this point, Luke has given us all kinds of scenes or pictures to consider about Jesus Christ. You have the picture of Jesus as an infant with his mother. Most of us love that one. We have the picture of Jesus as the teacher, teacher in the synagogue, teaching in the synagogue. You have the picture of Jesus who is the master and commander of the waves and the seas, healing sick people all over the place with his mighty power. But the picture that we have here that is given to us by Luke is one of a tormented Jesus, a tormented, anxiety-filled Jesus, a Jesus who is in agony. Now, as the crucifixion story continues in Luke's gospel, we'll discover a Jesus who will be abandoned by his own, who will be despised. We'll discover a Jesus who will be mocked. But in this moment, this Mount of Olives moment, we find ourselves looking at Jesus who was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of his death, as he said in Matthew and Mark's gospel. So we have a Jesus who's prepared to admit to his disciples that he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, in this, we have to be very, very careful. We have to try to understand who Jesus is. And we have to be careful not to make the mistake of elevating Jesus' divinity in such a way that we lose touch with his humanity. And we must equally be careful not to elevate his humanity in such a way that we lose touch with his divinity. So in the balance of our time given, we're going to try to understand these verses under two brief headings. So if we're taking notes, heading number one, Jesus surrendered to death. Jesus surrendered to death. We should be in no doubt Luke is writing here in such a way that he's making it very, very clear that the time had come for Jesus to surrender himself as the single, eternal, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Single, eternal, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Jesus then was about to bow to his enemies, put himself in their hands, submitting to evil men with their evil plans, which involved a trial, beatings, and a crucifixion. This is part of what it means when we say that Jesus surrendered to death. The other part, however, is this. In Jesus Christ, we have the Son of God who was fully God and fully man, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus who is cherished and distinctly loved by God the Father. And, and in this, Jesus who is about to be destroyed at the hands of God. Jesus who is about to be destroyed at the hands of God. As a single, eternal, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Now here are three verses from the Bible that simply underpin this truth. Isaiah 53 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Romans 8 32. He did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. 2 Corinthians 5 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
And dear people, if you're thinking, you would have to say this is unbelievable. At least it should be unbelievable because the innocent one is about to suffer at the hands of God. Now, many of us shake, rattle, and roll when we see on our televisions and when we read on our computer screens of the innocent suffering. And well, we should. Some even try to say, let's do something about it. And I'm with you. But here in the story of Christ's crucifixion is, a, is an innocent man that is about to suffer at God's hand. He's about to be crushed by God. He's about to be delivered up by God as a sacrifice. An innocent man is being made sin. Now McLeod, a theologian from a long time ago, lays it out so plain when he says, let's not sentimentalize it. This is not some green hill far away. It is a scene of the greatest atrocity in history. Calvary is quite literally a shambles. God's lamb is being slaughtered on a garbage heap outside the city in darkness by brutal soldiery and God is responsible. God's lamb is being slaughtered and God is responsible. So the question comes if you're listening, what right did God have to crush his son to death? What moral right is there in an innocent man being crucified, killed? Because what we have in the pages of the Bible is the declaring of Jesus as an innocent man, declaring of Jesus as a sinless slaver. So what right does God have to crush an innocent man? Answer, Christ is innocent concerning his own person. Christ was sinless, therefore he should not have been crucified. But he sustained in himself, and this is wonderful news, the personal sins of men and women in every generation. And so sustained in himself the wickedness of men and women of every generation, taking all our sins on him, and so for us, dying on the cross. Again, a single, eternal, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So when we read our Bibles and think about the cross and its declaration, yes, it is always right to say that in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God is displayed. But to say that would not near get to the depth of it. It's always right to say that Jesus is our high priest and our representative who bore our sin. But even that isn't enough. And yes, it's right to say that he died on our behalf, but it still is falling short in the absolute nature of what is taking place. So it's no wonder that Jesus says, Father, this is verse 42, Father, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Take this cup of your just wrath on their sin, their sin, not my sin. Take it away from me. And in this is a very human moment, still without sinning. And would it be wrong to suggest to you that we should thank God every day for the second part of verse 42? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus here was surrendering to his father's plan of his death. Jesus was, if you like, surrendering to illogical logic that made perfect sense to him. Jesus says, I will die for sin, but not for my sin. I will take on sin so that in my death, God was right. God was right. Because what do so many say in our day? God was wrong here. Or Jesus was confused here. Or God in the death of his son is behaving like a child abuser. 
a guiltless man is about to suffer at the hands of God. Why? For our lying, for our cheating, for our jealousy, our envy, our boasting, our lust, our greed, our selfish preoccupations, our slander, our unwillingness to carry a cross at all. It was my sin. It was my sin that held him there. Because he became what he was not. So that we might become what he is. And if you know your Bible and you know the book of Revelation, all of heaven is right now singing about this. They are glorying in this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And that fact would seem like foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the gospel. And the gospel is and only the power of God. Weakness is power. Because without substitution, the death of Jesus is unintelligible. However, without substitution, eternal life for men and women is impossible. For without Jesus taking our place, we would have no hope of entering his heaven. And I think in this, if we think about these things, when it comes time to sing, we may decide to sing a little better and think a little harder when we actually sing. And when I think, the song says, and when I think of God, his son, not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. Can we say that this evening? I scarce can take it in that on my, on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Heading number one, Jesus surrendered to death. Heading number two, our last heading, Jesus was strengthened to suffer. So as Jesus begins to settle on his suffering, the experience is so draining, verse 43, that an angel comes down from heaven to strengthen him. Jesus understands what's about to happen to him. It, 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 it won't be any clearer until it actually happens. So Jesus invested himself in this spiritually, physically, psychologically, totally, as the reality of, about, of what is about to happen to him is laid down on him. So the angel from heaven appears to him and, and strengthens him. What is that like? Well, I'm not sure. But what is so peculiar here to me, and here again, we have to be so careful. Those of us who are familiar with this story, we have to be very, very careful in verse 43 because wouldn't you have thought that once the angel came down, then all the bad things that you, uh, that, that all the bad things would just go away. So the father sends the angel, the angel comes, the angel does his thing, and all the bad is pushed away, and only the good remains, and Jesus is just fine. No. Those of you who ever met people who say they've been touched by an angel, I would dare say it never worked itself out that after the angel came and touched them, something akin to verse 44 actually happened. Verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Therefore, as Jesus was touched by an angel, instead of things getting better, things grew worse. They grew worse. So be careful, those of us who are always looking for angels to come and just fix everything. And even if an angel did come to you, what do you think an angel could do for you? Do you think that an angel can do more for you than the Holy Spirit? 
Do you think that an angel can do more than you than the eternal alive word of God put to bear on our minds and heart by grace through faith? I'm prepared to say absolutely not. And so in this Mount of Olives scene, Jesus was being strengthened not to avoid suffering. He was being strengthened not to overcome suffering. He was being strengthened to suffer. Strengthened to suffer. You see, you might not know this, but one of the problems of the century number one world was that they had to ask themselves time and time again as the gospel was preached to them, how could it be possible that a young, bloody, naked man on a cross, how could it be possible that he is the savior of the world? This is a pathetic, weak scene. How can God be with a man and in a man, for a man, a man, when all these things have happened to him? Surely when God is with you, they would say he protects you. Surely if one claims to be God, then he can do God things that will settle this whole thing down. When God is with you, you prosper in all that you do. When God is with you, your children and grandchildren are all squeaky clean. They are very, very shiny. They have great jobs eventually. They have unbelievable husbands and wives. When God is with you, you connect life dots and every one of those dots are just one fantastic moment from another. Consequently, the strength behind the line of thinking in century one is not too different, I would suggest to you, than the line of thinking in century 21. Good Christian men, good Christian women, if they really are good Christian men and really are good Christian women, should never ever have to suffer. And would I be wrong to suggest to you that in this, um, to suggest to you that in this, many as Christians live in a time and live in a culture and live in a context that is increasingly surprised by personal suffering? That the why did God allow this question is being asked more and more with a bent that kind of like mistrust God and maybe God didn't know what he was doing or know at the very least what he was allowing. And if you're under that persuasion as I am, then you have to ask yourself the question, why would this be so? Is it because the cross is no longer preached anymore? Possibly. Is it because things go so well for us, so long for us, that when suffering actually does come to us, it comes at a shock at the most, and at the very least, some kind of unwelcome intruder? Is it because some might suggest in their minds what they would never say with their lips, that they have done things far too well, so that suffering would have seemed highly unlikely or undeserved? Or is it because some might believe wrongly, I might add, that the whole reason why we do the church thing and the reason why we do the Bible study thing and the reason why we take our children to the religious thing and sign them up for the religious thing is that our hard work and our due diligence for a long enough time at a good enough pitch will make it possible that we will never ever have to suffer at all again. A kind of dressed up, superstitious view of Christ. When here Christ, in verse 44, is having protruding out of his body clots of coagulated blood. Moffat translate verse 44 as his sweat dropping to the ground like clots of blood. He, the perfect one, is sweating this way. Why is he sweating this way? Because he's suffering. Why is he suffering? Well, he's suffering for our sake. 
sweating blood as it were on a cold night have you ever thought about this how do we know it was a cold night because if you read all the gospels they tell us that the night was so cold that the soldiers and the high priest all had to build fires in the courtyard because it was so cold what in the dickens is christ doing sweating on a cold night he's suffering so in this scene you have jesus surrendering to death Jesus being strengthened to suffer and the suffering is on his knees in prayer which gives us a whole other line that we dare not take the time to go down on learning lessons about Christ-centered prayer. But our time is gone. So let me conclude with just two things. One for your comfort and one for your consideration. First, for your comfort. Surely we have here in this scene the consent for the legitimacy of our own human suffering. Surely because of Jesus, we then need to be careful in saying to our loved ones who are going through difficult times, things like, cheer up. You're a king's kid. What's the matter with you? You can do it. Have faith. Which I would suggest to you might be silly things when suffering comes their way. Here you have Jesus with his face in the ground, crying in the garden, overwhelmed in anguish to the point of feeling like death is imminent. Your grief, Jesus, is thus, it is insupportable and likely to be fatal to you. Get up, Jesus. Get up, Jesus, and be a man. Jesus would say as the blood pours out of his face, hush, I am a man. I am the quintessential man. I am the God-man. I am the standard for every human being on the face of the earth. And so here Jesus stands with those of us who are emotionally overwhelmed with the hardness of life, with the complexity of life, with our failures in life to the extent that we're just barely hanging on. He stands with those of us who when our loved ones die or we know they're about to die, it it would almost unhinge our minds. Jesus stands with us there. He stands with those of us who wish at times that the whole life thing would just shut down. Oh, how can you be a Christian and ever think those thoughts? Loved ones, Jesus Christ died for those thoughts. He died for every kind of thought that is troubling and may be or may not be wrong. A few weeks ago, I had one of those thoughts. I had one of the whole, I wish the whole thing would just shut down right now thoughts. I saw my wife. I said to her, will you please just hold my hand? Just hold my hand. She said to herself, I know because I could see it in her eyes. She said, here we go again. (laughs) It's one of those Joe moments. But she held my hand. Now, why do I say that to you? I say that to you because I think that instead of slick methodologies on positive thinking, when suffering comes our way, maybe sometimes we would do well just to hold each other's hands and cry. Hold each other's hands and cry. Because I think, I suspect, that's exactly what happened. And the angel came to strengthen our Lord. Now that is for your comfort. Now finally, this is for your consideration. There is no story like this anywhere. 
There is no other religion that comes close to matching this. This this is mysterious. This is majestic. This is glorious. This is all about the wonders of God's grace. The seriousness of his judgment mingled with the soberness of his love. When Jesus Christ was entering the garden, he was enduring our sin. He was preparing himself for the gospel because Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus was preparing himself for the fact that we are sinners. That we fall short of God's standard every day. But in the garden he was settling on the necessity of his death. As being all that was necessary for us to be put right with God. We cannot add anything to his death. We cannot subtract anything from his death. Even in the most defiant, ferocious moments of sin. For we must always be accepted before God for Jesus' sake. Or we will never, ever be accepted at all. You see, God does not accept our righteousness. In fact, frankly, our righteousness really just gets in the way. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take, O cross, the shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by. To know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory. All the cross. I thank you for your attention. If the elders would come forth, please, as we get ready to take communion. And if you would, let's just bow for a moment in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are st- just overwhelmed, staggered that Jesus, who is so wonderful, would come and die such a horrible death for our sake. You gave this world a mystery, Father, the mystery of the gospel. And it only is in the revealing of this mystery, Paolo, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word, that this mystery can ever be made clear in our minds. Save us, Father, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.